You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. We're going to start. Uh, welcome to this talk today. Uh, we have Professor Matteo Pumagalli, all the way from Budapest. But he gets to spend the whole week in Seattle when our weather is like this, so we can't blame him. He's an associate professor at Central European University, the Soros University. Uh, and he got his PhD from the University of Edinburgh in 2005. More importantly, he cut his teeth as a scholar in Kyrgyzstan, like I did. Uh, and it's not the easiest place to work, so uh, it builds character, and if you survive it, it only makes you stronger. And so, <laughs> uh, Mateo has interests that include comparative authoritarianism, ethnicity, nationalism, and diaspora politics, and the politics of natural resources. He has worked not only in Central Asia, but also in the South Caucasus, and now he has uh, an emerging interest in yeah. quasi-states, unrecognized states yeah. in the post-Soviet region, and now Southeast Asia as well, especially Myanmar. So he has expanded his research portfolio. Uh, he's also published in a variety of journals, including International Political Science Review, Electoral Studies, East European Politics, Europe-Asia Studies, and many other. Doing all this also while the head of a department, which as I hear, takes up even more time than all the other things that I mentioned. So. Uh, Today's talk, it's a long title, you can do it yourself, uh, but it's all about Kyrgyzstan, and that's the country we know and love the most. Yes. So, please join me welcoming Matthew Fulgogal. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks, Scott, for uh, the generous introduction. Um, so, the talk is primarily about Kyrgyzstan, but I'm happy to take questions about uh, the broader Central Asian region and the post-Soviet space. Um, Anyway, so 20 years apart, Kyrgyzstan experienced two bloody episodes of intercommunal violence in the southern part of the country, in and around the city of, of Osh. Now, the conflicts of June 1990 and June 2010 occurred at times of unraveling of uh, state authority. And the power vacuum that followed the um, April 2010 events, when the then president, Romek Bakiev, was ousted, um, enabled the escalation of polarized ethnic relations in, in society and eventually led to short-lived but bloody clashes uh, between two of the country's largest ethnic uh, groups. Now, I look at the 2010 events not as a... and the conflict, although they're referred to as, as events in uh, local parlance, uh, not as a, a discrete episode, um, but rather I try to embed it in a broader set of processes that encompass long-standing and unresolved uh, issues of state-building, nation-building. Um, so these issues f serve as a kind of a context or, or background for understanding and shedding light on, on the events. Now, to be clear, I don't dispute what I think is agreed in the literature, that is, that the primary causes of those events were local and and complete agreement with this. However, what I try and do is to place those events in a broader international context which show how the linkages between Kyrgyzstan, the ruling elites at the time, and the opposition, um, with a number of parties, 
Western and non-Western, so Russia, China, Uzbekistan, the European Union, the United States, um, paved the way for, for those events. The bigger question I'm interested in is to shed light on the effects of external players on domestic political outcomes. Um, the talk draws on, on a paper I'm working on that looks at exactly the same uh, issues. So from time to time, I refer to what is in the paper. Now, this part of a somewhat larger project, not a big, but still, uh, that tries to make sense of post-Soviet conflicts, and it's uh, coordinated by Gwen Sasse at the University of Oxford, who's looking at uh, the Crimean and the Chechen case, uh, together with Jim Hughes. Uh, Stefan Wolf, who's looking at the Moldovan Transnistrian case, Andrei Heritz, on, uh, uh, Georgian Abkhaz South Ossetian uh, cases, and then I'm looking at uh, the Kyrgyz one. Now, our interest in, in this matter from um, both a theoretical and, and empirical angle comes out of a sense of dissatisfaction with the way in which frozen conflicts have been studied over the last 20 years, uh, partly because they're referred to as frozen, and except that they're not they very quickly reignite um, in very different ways. Uh, what distinguishes Kyrgyzstan from, from the others is the fact that it's mired basically in this durable oscillation between abrupt descents into violence and very quick restoration of, of stability, and it just keeps moving on this imaginary uh, pendulum, whereas um, the other cases have somewhat different uh, dynamics. But what we're interested in is looking at how the links between the elites in those countries with a number of external players basically become quickly activated or uh, deactivate in the run-up to conflicts or during conflicts, and the way in which this activation or deactivation of links impacts on the conflict dynamics. We're not assuming a particular um, type of, of impact that is... Um, we are not assuming that external players necessarily induce conflict, as some of the Russia-related literature would lead us to believe. We don't assume that uh, Western intervention is necessarily uh, benign. In fact, some of the things that I show in the paper suggest otherwise. Um, so we try to see, in a way, um, we're asking questions about what role, if any, external players played in, uh, in the conflict cycle. Did they induce conflict? Did they help manage conflict? Did they help prevent conflict? And in a way, an analysis of uh, external players, and particularly non-Western actors, shows that uh, the impact is pretty much uneven. And we have some surprises with countries like Uzbekistan or Russia uh, playing somewhat more uh, positive uh, role than otherwise uh, expected. As an analytical entry point into this debate, uh, we try and adapt um, the framework developed by Levitsky and Wei uh, to make sense of the international, the transnational dimension of regime change in uh, Central Europe or the western part of Central uh, post-communist uh, Eurasia. Um, we basically try and explore uh, and map eventually linkages, social, economic, cultural, political intergovernmental uh, between the countries that constitute our case studies and the others, and try to show what role, if any, these linkages played prior to and during the conflict cycles, and also try and reverse the relationship and show how uh, conflicts reshaped 
those linkages, and I try and show this uh, with um, with a clear case. Um, in a nutshell, um, these are the questions I'm trying to answer in uh, in the paper, and that we're trying to answer in in the, in the projects. Uh, basically, just mentioned uh, some of them, and the focus is on is on Kyrgyzstan. And I think that the Kyrgyz case. Quite a fitting example. It's very useful for a comparative analysis of the role of external actors in domestic conflicts for a number of reasons. The first, which I've mentioned already, is the fact that um, over the space of 20, by now 25, 26 years, we have a sequence of conflicts and renewed stability uh, that allow us uh, the the possibility to analyze empirically uh, the eruption of new conflicts, violence, and a quick return to, to stability. That, in a way, allows us to, to have some variation in, in the outcome, which, I guess, for, for comparative politics is kind of um, essential. Actually, uh, what is FP, uh, the last line? Well, foreign policy orientation. Foreign policy. Afropa. Yeah, sorry. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't use acronyms, but <laughs> some things. Uh, I take too many things for granted, but yeah. Um, Kyrgyzstan is also interesting because um, at the time of Russian annexation of Crimea, a possible breaking down of Ukraine in multiple pieces, um, well, Kyrgyzstan, despite coming in from a different uh, perspective and a different context, still um, was a country where fears of possible Uzbek separatism were harbored. I've shown in other work that this war almost baseless, uh, or at best uh, exaggerated, but nonetheless it was important that in some elite circles there were fears that a part of the country, the southern part of the country, might at some point break away because of endogenous reasons, grievances, or external ones, irredentism. And again, in other work have shown that uh, Uzbekistan has done very little to, to that end. Um, but Kyrgyzstan is also interesting because unlike um, other post-Soviet post-Soviet states, we have the presence of multiple sources of external pressure, uh, which in some cases turned into leverage at some point in time, in the case of the US for sure, Russia as well, in some cases they didn't, China and the, uh, the European Union, but still we have a really multitude of, of, of actors uh, that were present in various forums in the country, and that makes, makes Kyrgyzstan interesting, that makes the whole of Central Asia is extremely interesting, and I think that a number of authors like Alex Cooley have shown it, that one of the reasons why studying Central Asia is so great from an international relations point of view is that this is a, a fantastic case study of, of the emergent multipolar nature of contemporary politics. Um, so Kyrgyzstan is, is a window on these kind of issues. Um, the paper is structured in... in three different uh, bits. I look at the sources of Kyrgyzstan's current uh, predicament, so I zoom in on the, well, the, the right, and basically the Kyrgyz part of the Fergana Valley, which is um, a fertile, one of the most fertile regions in, in Central Asia, so extremely populated one. We span the boundaries of Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. Not all boundaries are agreed upon, some are contested, some are demarcated, some are not. Uh, there are some oddities, including uh, about a dozen uh, enclaves in the various Central Asian countries that share this region. 
Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan is home to, to three in, in the southern part of the country. So I cover the origins of Kyrgyzstan's uh, post-Soviet predicament in, in the first part of the paper. I then move on uh, to map the linkages um, between Kyrgyzstan and a number of other parties, uh, countries, and then look at the relationship between linkages and conflicts and then reverse this and look at the way in which the 2010 conflict reshaped some of the linkages. Right, so uh, this is a very quick snapshot of, of the two conflicts, which in a way are, in some respects, are similar. Um, they occurred at the time of uh, weakening of state control, Soviet, obviously, in 1990, uh, post-independence in 2010. In a way, this unraveling of state authority enabled a power vacuum in, in 2010, enabled um, the conflict. Um, the transnational dimension was just not there in 1990. And it played a role, as I show in the paper, in 2010. Um, the actors were somewhat uh, different uh, 20 years apart we had uh, informal organizations sort of vigilantes groups that were active in 1990 um, different set of actors that played a role in, in the 2010 events uh, ranging from uh, basically groups loyal to the ousted uh, president <coughs> Businessmen turned to politician. Um, other differences include uh, the fact that while both took place, in broadly speaking, the same part of the country, a violence occurred in Osh, in, in the city of Osh, in both cases, but not in other locations. So it was again uh, north of Osh. Uh, so quite a lot of violence in 1990. Surprising, or the, to the surprise of some, many. In fact, it didn't in 2010. So in a way, we have overlaps in the case of where violence manifested itself in some cases, but in other cases, we have violence in one conflict and not in the other. Um, in a nutshell, this is what I argue in the paper, namely that first, um, basically, complex linkage and Leverage arrangements have had an impact on the conflict dynamics in, in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, by complex, I mean increasingly diverse linkages between Kyrgyzstan and a number of other external players, but also increasingly dense with some of them, Russia primarily. Um, the second point I make in the paper is that, at the, at, recall that we draw on the Levitskian Way framework, the distinction between black knights and white knights non-Western versus Western actors and their impacts on domestic political outcomes would do with some nuancing. And particularly a study of Uzbekistan's response to the 2010 events and Russia's role or lack thereof in those events uh, shows that, well, uh, we should reconsider the way we think about this black knights, white knights uh, dichotomy. And thirdly and finally, um, the study of external players in the conflicts um, gives some sense of agency or increases the 
the importance of agency in what was otherwise a fairly structural framework, this linkage and, and leverage. Um, all right. So this might be very familiar to all of you, or some. Uh, if so, just bear with me for, for a while. So what I try and do in the, in the paper is to um, go through three issues which I think are central to understand the difficulties of Kyrgyzstani authorities to establish a functioning uh, state over the last 25 years. First is stateness. Uh, issues that basically result from a condition where there are profound differences um, or incongruences between the territorial boundaries, the state boundaries, the political boundaries of the state, and uh, the ethnic ones. Uh, differences between the, the boundaries of the state and who has the right of citizenship in it. And stateness in issues began to be studied, or at least with regard to um, transition politics and the literature by Linz and Stepan. Among, among others. And this is relevant to Kyrgyzstan because from the Soviet experience, the country inherited a complex legacy of ethnic uh, politics, which manifests itself in two main cleavages. It's a bit of a simplification, but I think still analytically this, this holds. And one is an ethnic cleavage between the majority group, the titular nationality, the Kyrgyz, that constituted a bare majority when the country became independent in 1991, probably about 60, 62% according to the 1989 Soviet census, and the rest of the country, which is as multinational, multinational as it gets, not unlike, not unlike Kazakhstan or, or Georgia, for example. That is, there was not just one other minority group, there were several. At the time of independence, Russians constituted the largest minority group, um, 12, 13%. They're now down to 8 or 9%. Uzbeks constituted around 10% at the time of independence. They're, they went up to about 14%. It's a bit unclear how many there are uh, after the 2010 events. But then there, there's plenty of others. There are Tajiks in the south. Um, Ukrainians, Poles, Slavs, Koreans, um, but still, the, the relevant, the relevant ones for the purpose of this study are the, are the Uzbek uh, ones. And then there's a second cleavage, which is a regional cleavage, which uh, is used sometimes usefully, sometimes not so much, as a way to think about the way in which Kyrgyzstani or usually Kyrgyz politics functions in terms of the opposition between different groups sometimes linked by kinship, sometimes not so much, sometimes fictive, sometimes real. Um, this is useful in the sense that already in Soviet times, power was alternated between northern groups and southern groups. And whenever there's a power transfer, violent or non-violent, uh, usually there's also an alternation today between north and south, that is, today Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan's politics is seen as being controlled primarily by northern factions, although a glance at the country's electoral politics suggests that you know, the parties in power have a much more capillary presence across the country for a number of reasons, including that that's almost mandated by the 2010 constitution. I can return to this a bit later. Um, similarly to other post-Soviet countries, uh, the Kyrgyz elite 
uh, have struggled between two narratives, two way of two ways of uh, defining what being Kyrgyzstani uh, means. Uh, there's hardly any country, or cannot think of many countries that would sit neatly into one of these two uh, ways of thinking about nation building, ethnic or civic. Um, this has been shown in, in the literature on, on nationalism. But Kyrgyzstan really is a messy or a complex country in this respect with leaders like Akhaev, the first president after, president after independence, ruled the country from 1990 until 2005, or even the current one, Atambayev, who's been in power since 2010, that really oscillates between uh, a, a pragmatic need to give in to some nationalist groups and tendencies and demands within society, and probably their own preferences that would be they would tilt in a different direction, that is, to recognize the diversity of, the, of Kyrgyzstan's society. And this has not been reconciled. This question of whether one should prevail over the other has been, think of, a, of kicking down the can as a metaphor, the issue has been postponed for almost 20 years, but basically over the last five, five to six years, I think that this is being resolved in favor of the dominance of a more ethnic nationalist way of thinking about identity. And thirdly, uh, the third source of insecurity of the country is the sense of imperiled sovereignty, part of which, again, has an ethnic underpinning. Large Uzbek minority concentrated in the south, in border areas, next to a country with which Bishkek doesn't have good relations, Uzbekistan. Um, but this is not the only reason why we have a sense of imperiled sovereignty. Uh, disputed borders with China, speaking of conspiracies, the extent to which uh, uh, the war plans to cede more territory to, uh, to Beijing at some point in, in time, um, the sense of creeping migration coming in from the south, where you would have very, very unpopulated territories in southern Kyrgyzstan that are now seeing an inflow well, now, over the last 10 years or so, from neighboring Tajikistan, where lack of arable land and overpopulation, and different demographic dynamics, are basically bringing in more and more Tajiks onto Kyrgyz land. Um, and then the issues of uh, what the lease of territory, lease of bases means in terms of the country's sovereignty. And Kyrgyzstan is one of the very few, well, it's probably the only country, uh, that has been home to a Russian and a U.S. base sitting basically at about what, 30 kilometers from, from each other uh, until 2014 when the American base was evicted and, well, whatever, basically it was vacated. Um, this draw uh, was basically the data here come from either the official Soviet and post-Soviet census and then uh, estimates for 20... 12. Yes, the hunch would suggest that um, there are probably fewer Uzbeks in the country uh, than official stats suggest, but I couldn't find anything more more recent for for the country. Um, and that these are data prior to the the conflict, which led um, probably up several hundreds of thousands displaced either internally 
or internationally. Some found refuge in neighboring Uzbekistan for a very short period of time before being uh, repatriated. Kyrgyzstan's Uzbeks are not uh, the favorite Uzbeks of the Uzbek of Tashkent's leadership. Um, so they were taken in. There were pressures to take in more when the conflict erupted, and then there were, well, the leadership happily returned them to where they said they belonged. So in the second part of the of the paper, I try to map. Uh, linkages of various sorts. Now, mapping economic linkages in terms of FDI aid um, investment is a complex and imprecise exercise uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, various linkages overlap. Aid, in, aid and investment in the Chinese case. Uh, subsidies, aid and investment in the Russian case, which are really difficult, or I found difficult to disentangle with each other. Data is not openly available for all these countries. Easier in the case of China, less easy in the case of Russia, unavailable in the case of Uzbekistan. So in this case, you do the best you can, which is pretty much what I did. Um, so I tried to map uh, trade relations between uh, Kyrgyzstan and a number of relevant parties. And what you show, what I don't think the data are that surprising. Basically, this boils down to, well, China has a colossal economic clout in the region. Surprise, surprise. Um, and nobody who is familiar with the region would be surprised by, by this. Uh, what's probably more surprising is, compared to other Central Asian countries, um, trade relations with the EU are not that significant. I think the picture would be very different if we considered Kazakhstan, for example. Um, and relations with Russia are obviously extremely um, important. Um, Okay, let me. When it comes to China, attention has focused primarily on investment in the hydrocarbon and mineral uh, sectors. China is a relative latecomer to the region, but has been catching up through both direct intervention, foreign aid, government-sponsored investment activities, or indirect ways, loans through the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and its particular bank. It has invested in infrastructure. It does in Central Asia what it does in other parts of the world, uh, including in, in Africa and, and, and Southeast Asia. Uh, USAID has taken many forms in the country, including democracy, economic and military assistance. Um, European uh, economic linkages with the U.S. focus primarily on um, humanitarian aid. Um, the main focus has been on basically non-traditional security challenges, border management, drug control. Um, Moscow is a key investor in, in, in the country and controls a number of uh, sectors in, in the local economy. Rusidro, um, for example, began a, con a construction of a $400 million hydroelectric cascade in 2013. Uh, later in the same year, uh, Kyrgyz gas was sold to Gazprom for one dollar. So Gazprom had to take uh, take over the thirty-eight million dollars of accumulated debt. Um, Rasneft took over half percent, um, fifty percent of the shares of the Manas International Airport, uh, where previously the U.S. base was located, and paid in excess of one billion dollars uh, for for this. So, in some over time, economic linkages have grown more diverse. 
away from Russia, which was the only partner in Soviet times, obviously it was the command economy, so it was an integrated economy, reflecting Bishkek's open door approach to foreign policy and foreign economic relations. Um, the rise of China has been especially visible in the country. But overall, considering aid, investment, subsidies, Bishkek's ties with Moscow have grown increasingly dense. Uh, with regard to security, well, the Central Asian states, and Kyrgyzstan is not an exception here, there's a typo. Uh, it's one million in 1999, uh, not one billion. Um, so Kyrgyzstan, similarly to the other Central Asian republics, have received external military assistance since the mid-1990s, uh, although the amount of that assistance has, has grown tremendously from 2001 onwards for obvious uh, reasons. Um, Russian military aid has increased tremendously from the turn of the centuries onwards, so when the Russian economy basically came went back to on its feet, um, and when the figures reflect as much, so basically um, the, the deals uh, that were signed in recent years uh, cover anything, there, anything from training, weapon supplies, military aircraft, um, Russia's military, well, Russia's security presence in, in the region is, is extremely diverse. That includes this air base in, in, in Canton near Bishkek, uh, where about 700 troops are stationed. There's a training center for Russian and Kyrgyzstan security services in, in Osh, in the south. There's a Russian Navy communication node uh, in Karabalta. There's a Russian military research center near the Sikul. There's a, a seismic station in the south. Quite a lot of things are, are, are going on on the Russian side. By contrast, Chinese military assistance has been negligible, uh, or at least fairly limited, compared to that coming from Russia and the United States. Um, there are a number of reasons for for this, including um, the fact that um, having military bases by giant uh, next door would be extremely problematic in, in the country and would complement what is already, as I said, a colossal economic role played by the People's Republic uh, there. As to the United States, the, the, the fate of the Manas Air Base has de facto overshadowed pretty much anything else uh, in terms of cooperation between Kyrgyzstan and, and the United States. Um, and that is part of the problem. The relationship has become increasingly just about security. Um, and that has really overshadowed everything, not everything else. Not because uh, aid was not forthcoming in other sectors, but because really the fate of Manas was the main issue that mattered for, for Washington. Um, in order to ensure the survival of that base, it basically meant tying its hands to the fate of whatever leadership, whatever elites were in power. Once those elites were ousted, well, there was no alternative to, to those, which left Kyrgyzstan move very nicely into the hands of, of the Russian Federation. Um, in terms of intergovernmental ties, Kyrgyzstan is a very enthusiastic supporter of regionalism, whatever regionalism, and of international organizations. Create an organization, Kyrgyzstan will join it. <laughs> Enthusiastically. Uh, the same cannot be said 
for its neighbors, but which can, is an enthusiast here. Uh, and there's plenty more acronyms uh, that, that I didn't put up uh, that um, uh, could be listed here. But basically here, simply, uh, the, the point is pretty straightforward. Um, what we have is a, an attempt to establish relations with pretty much anybody. I think that the need for economic assistance and investment drove the foreign policy of, of Kyrgyzstan. Uh, and having good ties, entering the WTO allowed Kyrgyzstan to become the entry point of Chinese goods into the Central Asian markets, benefits from low tariffs or no tariffs. The country has benefited tremendously from, from it. Membership in the Eurasian Union risked at some point jeopardizing this, although Russia's and Kazakhstan's membership in the WTO eventually will have to solve this uh, issue, um, but meant that, well, um, a number of products um, could be exported from Kyrgyzstan to the other members of the Eurasian Economic Union. Um, less than those that were coming in, but still. Social linkages, well, here, um, what I try and do is look at migration, background of the, of the elites, internet penetration and access to media. That is, where do the Kyrgyz, uh, where, where do Kyrgyzstanis get information from? An analogy, an analysis of social linkages shows that uh, unlike some of the other linkages, social linkages have not grown more diverse over time, but they've actually grown more dense between Russia and, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, people get information through TV, uh, television, and that means Russian television, not because there are no Kyrgyz channels, of course there are, but somehow Russian TV is seen as more reliable or programs are better uh, are constructed or, or put together. And just the quality of programs uh, looks better or is seen as better just because it's Russian. Migration is an extremely important phenomenon uh, for Kyrgyzstan, socially and economically. At least a million people um, living in Russia, uh, or Kyrgyzstan, uh, Kazakhstan to a much smaller extent. And um, remittance to GDP share is one of the highest in, in the world, depending on the year ranges between 31 and 35% according to World Bank data. That's quite an amount. Um, probably higher ones in the regions are only those of Tajikistan. Uh, I think we're talking about between 40 and 50% depending on, on the year. Um, what else is there? Internet penetration is pretty low, 23% of some sort um, according to Freedom House data. Um, Internet is not restricted, although from time to time there are some sort of restrictions on political content, but these are small, basically. Culturally, the closest ties are between the Kyrgyz and the Kazakhs and the Uzbeks nearby, but relations with Uzbekistan are complicated, so nothing, has, nothing much has come out of this. So what I've shown, what I've shown in the second part of the, of the paper, as a way of summary, is that Economic linkages have grown more diverse over time. Uh, in the security sphere, they've become more diverse in the 2000s, only to become more dense with Russia in this decade. Um, they're diverse 
in terms of intergovernmental and uh, linkages, and dance with Russia in the in the social one. So then the following part of the paper is to try and look at uh, the run-up to the June 2010 violence um, to see how these linkages shaped relations between Kyrgyzstan and, and a number of other um, states. And there, now I don't have time to go through this in, in detail, but what I, what I zoom in is um, the shenanigans that accompanied the negotiations between Bishkek and Washington over the fate of the Manas Air Base. And we're talking about 2008-2009, uh, where basically Moscow felt betrayed. Um, basically, um, Russia was trying to lure Kyrgyzstan and particularly its then-president Bakiev away from uh, ties with Washington, offered uh, particularly handsome and transparent uh, deals, um, both countries, Russia and Kyrgyzstan, made a colossal fuss out of, of quite a lot of these particular deals. Uh, there were several high-level meetings uh, between the then president Medvedev and, and Bakiev, only to find out that Bakiev was all too ready to renege on those deals and basically go back asking for more from Washington. This all culminated in a new, one of the many new deals over the Manas Air Base, where both parties, Washington and Bishkek, could claim victory. Uh, Bishkek could claim victory because it was basically asking for an increase from like, around 60 million to 200 million uh, dollars for the lease of the base. Probably got near 170 million out of a one-off payment plus, uh, I think, 60 million for for the actual lease of the base. Um, Washington could also claim victory because try to justify the one-off payment in the forms of broader assistance to the country. So I said, look, you asked us 200, we gave you 60. Um, be it as it may, this didn't go down very well with, uh, with the Russian leadership that then started the campaign in the winter of 2009 and 10, um, which exposed in the Russian media, TV and, and printed, the corruption of the Bakiev regime, uh, blamed the regime for increasing the utility prices, the price for energy, as a result of its own decision to increase uh, the amount of money that the Kyrgyz would have to pay for importing energy to the country. Um, the Russian leadership uh, met with leaders of the then opposition um, in, in Moscow. So what happens before uh, April 2010 is an activation of the dense network of linkages at multiple levels, economic, social, political, um, between Russia and, and Kyrgyzstan. And these multiple nested linter linkages basically open the window of opportunity for Russia to pull the plug from uh, its support to, for, for uh, Bakiev, Bakiev's regime and do something which in hindsight looks pretty ironic uh, when we think about how Russia relates to regime change elsewhere in its periphery. And perceived, we imagine, Western support for events in, say, Ukraine, for example. Um, I'm not arguing that Russia ousted Bakiev's regime, 
but certainly Russian action uh, enabled, made it possible for that regime to implode. Um, so it enabled change and paved the way for a vacuum of power which later enabled the violence. So Russia didn't cause the violence either. But by favoring de facto regime change, it made possible what, what followed, which was pretty uh, bloody. Um, Russia was also all too ready to recognize the new regime. So recall, in, 20, in, in April 2010, Bakiev's regime uh, imploded. Uh, the, the interim authorities get immediate recognition from the then Prime Minister of the Russian Federation, later um, President once again. Um, again, that, that's really out of character for, for Russia, again, if we think about how the Kremlin thinks about regime change. Um, the leadership uh, of the then the, the leadership that was ousted was primarily rooted in, in the south the new leadership that came to power in tw after April 2010 was primarily rooted in, in the northern part um, so the effects of the actions that led up to the April 2010 events also had a regional dimension uh, which is a politically as I mentioned at the very beginning a politically relevant cleavage in the, in the country. So the linkages were transformed into leverage when a political opportunity emerged that fused and activated all those various links. Um, those nested linkages contributed to unsettling the local balance of power between North and South, among others, and enabled the conflict, but did not cause it. Um, then we have a really an unraveling of the state between April and, and June, Hardly anybody was was in control, particularly in the southern part of the of the country. Um, unlike earlier episodes of regime change, there was a deadlock between the old regime, the, the ancien regime, and the new authorities. That's very different from 2005, when again there was another episode of regime change. But it was pretty clear who had won, who had lost, and those that lost accepted the fa their fate. That was not the case in 2010, and they actually put up a fight. Retreated to the south and mounted a bit of resistance. A number of episodes followed. I can go through in the, the Q&A session, but basically um, polarized ethnic relations basically were became more and more acute over the following two months, and eventually uh, what followed was an outbreak of intercommunal violence. It's probably a question of semantics or academic discussions whether there is a difference between an ethnic conflict or a conflict that looks like an ethnic conflict, but it isn't. I argue that this was of a second kind, that the issue was not ethnic in, in its origin, but certainly manifested itself along ethnic lines. When that conflict happened, uh, the weak authorities uh, in Bishkek, the interim authorities, asked for external help from Russia, um, so those were the leaders that had visited Russia prior to regime change, that had received recognition from Russia right after ousting Bakiev, asked for help either from Russia or the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the security organization under a Russian umbrella of which Kyrgyzstan is, uh, is a member. 
were told that Russia would not intervene. Um, China followed suit, China directly, and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization basically stated that the events were just Kyrgyzstan's domestic matter and they should, that should be dealt accordingly. Uh, Uzbekistan opened the border, closed the border, took in refugees, returned refugees, uh, but basically did not do what some um, the Uzbek community in Kyrgyzstan were asking for, that was help, active help, or what even some uh, within Uzbekistan were asking uh, Islam Karimov to do, that is to, to intervene on behalf of fellow Uzbeks to stop the violence. Uh, that didn't happen either, and I think that the, the lack of intervention was crucial in, in mitigating the, the violence. Um, what did the West do? Well, the Western response to the Osh events is a sobering story about broader Western leverage in, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, because Washington, more than Brussels, had uh, tied itself so closely to the, the fate of the Bakiev regime, and had virtually ignored the opposition. The moment the first was gone and the second had come to power, they basically had hardly any influence on the, on the latter. And I think that, that was a problem. Not that there was any strategy as to how to stop the violence or what to do with it, uh, but that's basically what happened. And then in the, second, in, the, in the final part of the paper, I tried to see how... Um, I basically tried to investigate the effects of conflict on the linkages themselves. That is, how... Um, the ascent to power of new elites meant that earlier linkages were discontinued and some other linkages were, well, basically were made even closer. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'll, I'll skip that part. So, it, come to a map which basically, okay, this table basically gives a sense of uh, what I try and show in the entire paper. So, Russia's linkages increased dramatically over the last 25 years. Uh, European linkages remain depressingly low. Um, and so do various linkages between Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. Again, there's no love lost between the two countries. Linkages between Kyrgyzstan and China grow gradually, steadily, uh, over, over time. Ties with the US were low, go up and down again. Um, some of these ties were activated uh, in 2010, others were not. The timing, I think, was important to understand the events and the context behind the event. That is, it would be very difficult to understand how Kyrgyzstan got into what it got in June 2010 without taking into consideration not only regime change in April 2010, but how regime change was made possible, given that well, Bakiev's regime was pretty brutal. Um, and it seemed back at the time that people would be stuck with that regime for a very long time, except that they weren't. Um, as to leverage, uh, what I think the paper shows is that uh, Western leverage is basically now very limited in, in the country. It's extremely high in the case of Russia. Uh, we can discuss whether Kyrgyzstan's leadership had any option other than basically becoming a member of the Eurasian Union and basically sticking with Russia. What is certain is that, it seems to me, it has moved from a partnership, asymmetrical, unequal, 
to more than just an alliance. I mean, we, we have entrapment in the case of Kyrgyzstan at the moment, which I think is a problem as it deprives the leadership of alternatives. It has one security provider, one uh, main economic partner. There were no alternatives, I think. So I think that, that Bishkek did what it had to do, but clearly the decisions are not inconsequential and they're not without consequences. Um, so what I try to do in, in, in this paper is to explore the intertwined uh, nature of foreign policy pressures and domestic political processes. Uh, and I pay, try to pay uh, particular attention on how diverse transnational linkages have impacted on Kyrgyzstani politics, particularly in its conflicts. Um, I've tried to show that the deepening and the diversification of these linkages have resulted in new configuration of inside-outside uh, ties. Also try to show, uh, to shed light on how uh, the activation of these linkages has turned into leverage and how the deactivation of some linkages, in the case of Uzbekistan, I haven't dealt much with it in, in this talk, has contributed to mitigate conflict, both the 2010 conflict, but also broadly speaking, the conflict between the two countries and communities over the last 25 years. Uh, I have a number of issues with Uzbekistan's leadership, but this is not one of them. Um, and then finally, I've tried to look at uh, the importance of timing when trying to make sense of um, the effects of the role of the decisions of external players, that is, how uh, linkages affected conflict, but also how conflict really reshaped linkages. And I'll just shut up because I've spoken for too long. So thank you for this. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so you both put a lot of ideas out there, and uh, I think we'll probably have some questions. Um, what's your overall conclusion, then, um, from the project? Mm -hmm. uh, is it, are you more interested in how much external influence there is in general, or are you interested more in the geopolitical aspects, like who the key players are and what interest, what interest they'll be able to uh, successfully realize in Central Asia? Uh, so whose eyes are you looking through mostly in, in terms of the broader goals of, of this paper and the project? Mostly non-Western eyes. So I was interested in looking at the role of Russia and, and China and Uzbekistan, so in a way the illiberal players in the region. I tried to do both because I think it's impossible to do the second without doing the first. I had to, you have to empirically map, map linkages before you can establish even when some of these linkages morph into leverage and establishing leverage is only something that you can do exposed I think just of establishing uh, that so I'm interested or the project was about looking in general at how um, we've witnessed a reorientation of the linkages over the last 25 years but also, it is also a project about geopolitical competition and influence um the competition, yeah, sure, between Western actors and non-Western actors, um, the decline of the former and the rise of some of the others. Uh, but it's also an attempt to nuance some of what we think about uh, the intentions and especially the actions and the impact of non-Western actor, actors in the region. And looking at the, the extent to which some of them have mitigated conflict, some of which have prevented or managed conflict, I think that helps us put this 
broader discussion about geopolitical competition in a broader perspective. So Russia, China, Uzbekistan might not always be the black knights that we think they are. Whether this is the result of, of conscious choices, where it is the result of, sort of unintended consequences, and I suspect that it is. I think that Russia ended up being the unintended democratizer of Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan is probably... Well, it is a... We can dispute whether this is democratic or not, but certainly there is competitive politics, and it's fiercely competitive. And I think that that's the result of Russia's actions. Did he plan to do it? Probably not. I think that Russian foreign policy is regime blind. What matters is the Russian... is how pro-Russian you are. You can be democratic, you can not be democratic, it doesn't really matter. I don't think Russia cares whether Kyrgyzstan is democratic, whether Ukraine is democratic or not. Pro-Russian-ness is what matters. So, yeah. right. And then related question. I mean, I think this kind of maps onto a larger discussion about stability versus mm-hmm. liberalization. Um, and and the, white, the white knight, black knight mm-hmm. discussion mostly has to do with external powers influence mm-hmm. on how democratic or authoritarian yeah, yeah. exporting democracy yeah. or autocracy. Uh, whereas I don't think the argument about black or white knights is made in terms of stability. I don't think sure, that yeah. anybody's arguing that Russia is a destabilizing force, or Uzbekistan is a destabilizing force. Uh-huh. Uzbekistan is synonymous with stability. Uh-huh. So perhaps it's to be expected that <clears throat> these Eastern authoritarian powers, though they don't care about democracy, do care a lot about stability. Uh-huh. And in that sense, their interests actually may overlap with uh-huh. Western countries that are not overly zealous about democratizing. And increasingly value stability, given the political changes that have happened in other parts of the world recently. Oh, yeah. So, in the sense that we're seeing that a convergence, and that everybody's, you know, black or white isn't what matters. What matters is, um, you know, everybody prioritizes stability first and foremost. And even America, the leading democratizing crusader of the last twenty years, <laughs> isn't really so going on about democracy and technology these days. Yeah, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think that what we have is competition. But this is not a zero-sum game. At the end of the day, most of them have been able to coexist relatively uncomfortably with uh, with each other. All of them has have a, an interest in stability. What we have is some very clear free riders in there, China, which has benefited from uh, security provision first coming from the U.S., then from Russia, and only very recently has started to think about. Um, the fact that it might actually start to chip in, given that it has growing interest in Afghanistan, economic interest, and still in the Central Asian states. But I think that we're still uh, in a situation where, in Central Asia, China is still a consumer of security rather than a direct provider. Could well be that that scenario would be seen as unacceptable in the eyes of Russia. I think that there's a constant... Um, performance at a rhetorical level coming out of Beijing uh, that basically recognizes all the time that this is Russia's uh, that, that the region falls within uh, Russia's interest and privileged interest but you say it once fine you say it three times two times three times four times at some point it just becomes suspicious um, but I think that so in a way I, I agree with you um there's this no zero sum game at the moment. It might change, but uh, the more interesting dynamic is Russia 
uh, sorry, China being the, the, the free rider here. Other questions? You, you, can, you can handle them, go ahead. All right, okay, sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a, an article two or three days ago in, I think, the New York Times that said that Martin um, Baya was thinking about not going to the SCO summit this summer in uh, Tashkent because of some pressures in the northern Fergana Valley as some sort of a standoff with uh, the Uzbeks, I believe. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and they're not CSTO members, mm-hmm. but Kyrgyzstan is, and it sort of makes you wonder if there isn't some, especially with being everybody nervous about Russia's uh, aggressiveness at the moment, if there isn't some sort of a uh, um, ploy being made uh, to uh, change the uh, formula between Russia and China in that in that context that uh, maybe reading too much into it, but I, I find it really strange that it would be so um, out of the news everywhere else and then and then uh, take such a Atambaya it takes a strong stance to say we're not going to Tashkent if, mm-hmm. until this is resolved kind of a thing. Uh, there might be several reasons why he's not going. So yeah, so but skirmishes around that border, the Uzbek Kyrgyz border have been going on on a almost a daily basis since 2013-14 although the last few weeks have been uh, tensions have, have risen a bit so one could uh, explain Atambayev's decision not to go as a result of the fact that well look, there are interstate tensions and until these are resolved he would not go there given that going to Tashkent would, could be interpreted or construed as a, as a sign of weakness on his side interpersonal relations between him and Karimov are awful um, and I think that there was um, a nice recording at some point. I don't remember whether it was an SCTO. No, it was a CIS leaders meeting in... Uh, and it was a meeting to celebrate an anniversary of the end of World War II. So we're talking about last year. And it's publicly available. And basically... Um, Atambayev doesn't come out very nicely of that meeting. So you have Putin, Karimov, Nazarbayev, Atambayev there. And Atambayev tries to say a couple of things, and then he basically gets shut up brutally by, by Karimov. And basically gets told, like, yeah, but we, we know who you are and who you represent. You know, it counts like the two of spades. Um, so it could well be that, that an interstate basically it's not a war but certainly very high level interstate tensions poor personal relations um, the SEO itself is changing as a result of its membership being broadened so it could well be that as well but I, I would imagine that the first two possible explanations would be sufficient for Atan Bayev not to not to attend the meeting in, in Tashkent uh, but yeah, basically, Russia and China have long disagreed over whether the Shanghai Cooperation Organization should expand its membership, which was Russia's view, or whether it should remain stable and focused on the region, which was China's view. And now with uh, entry of members from, from South Asia, dynamics are probably changing. I mean, we shall see whether they actually do, but um, uh, certainly changes in, is in the making that front. 
you have some Yeah, I, I have a couple of questions. First one is, um, uh, did you uh, notice like uh, any partition of the local population to the groups in terms of in terms of uh, uh, external uh, linkages? Uh, because the uh, presidential elections are coming up in 2017, mm-hmm. and like, did you notice any groups like pro Russian, pro Western, pro themselves? Uh, um, which would make sense during like there's no alternative I think that's uh, well I cannot see anybody campaigning on a pro-western platform uh-huh. in 2017 and winning I mean it was this suicidal choice of Arnamus uh, last thing in October but after being proud of being one of the most pro-Russian parties in Kyrgyzstan for 20 plus years, decided to, to run on, or at least to field some candidates who were notoriously pro-Western, and that I'm sure it's not been the only reason for that party's demise, but it was really a, a kind of strategy that shot it, that amount of shooting yourself in the foot. Um, so I think that the only game in town is pro-Russian-ness. Uh, the question is how close or not so close. Um, I cannot possibly think of being closer than this. Um, now, Kyrgyzstan obviously needs money, needs resources, so I guess we will witness uh, a queue of people showing up at the Kremlin, pledging allegiance and trying to compete over who is closer to to the Tsar. Um, I don't think that the West has is articulating any sort of offer to, to Kyrgyzstan. What, what can we offer? The EU cannot, member, cannot offer EU membership. There's no neighborhood policy that could be attractive to, to Kyrgyzstan. The only thing that the EU offers is educational exchanges and a couple of other things. Fine. Interesting, important, but nothing. It's just peanuts. Uh, I'm not entirely sure whether there is a clear message that comes out of Washington uh, that can be easily understood in Bishkek. I'm not saying that there are no high-level visits, but one needs to be able to articulate a political offer and make sure that the local elites understand what the message is, and I don't think that there is this clarity on, at the moment, so that's not uh, that's not an alternative. And closer ties with China are just not realistic. So, just a question of different shades of pro-Russianness. Okay, the second question is uh, uh, there are some Chinese projects run by the uh-huh. Chinese government and actually some of them, like there's a railway thing, uh-huh. then mining uh, oh, yeah. projects, uh, they had been planned way back ago, like when the Kaip, when Kaip was the president. Mm-hmm. And actually, the Chinese tried to lobby this for like like a couple of decades. And actually, those projects have been planned by the state council of mm-hmm. uh, PRC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and like it was like a part of... Uh, level 12 uh, five-year plan uh, that was approved by the State Council of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they just included what to do in Kyrgyzstan. They already predecided. But all three presidents just kind of screwed it up, you know, the, like, uh, no uh, railway, no some mining projects. Some did work, some did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, in these terms, what uh, was your vision about uh, Chinese leverages in this direction? It's considerable in economic terms to the point that it can decide to decrease support 
and Kyrgyzstan would not be able to to say anything just because they're uh, the alternatives are limited in terms of economic uh, ties. Um, this is not to say that the relationship is smooth. Okay, it's unequal that we know hierarchical. Uh, I'm not. I don't think it's smooth. And I think that the fact that the mining sector. Uh, so the, there are about 200 mines in, uh, in, in Kyrgyzstan, and 50 of those are Chinese controlled. The fact that operations are constantly disrupted. It's nothing Chinese-specific. I mean, Kumtor is obviously not controlled by, by the Chinese. And it's, it, well, but it's broadly representative of a problem that you have um, sometimes attacks on workers, Chinese workers. Sometimes you have protests. And, well, there are ups and downs in that relationship Two. So on the one hand, you have a state that is much weaker and in need of assistance. On the other hand, there are several issues, perhaps not at the interstate level, but at people-to-people level that are there. Um, so others, well, and Peru have written about this um, disjuncture in the relationship towards China of the Central Asian populations with Sinophiliac elites and Sinophobe people. And I think that this ups and downs in the mining sector and the protests and Tensions. Um, I think it's part of that story where yeah, there's a bigger picture, and we, as part of that bigger picture, nothing really changes in terms of structural dynamics. But then there are smaller stories, which are stories of well, tensions, grievances. Uh, how much the mo- smaller stories impact on the bigger story? I'm not entirely sure. I think that they're interesting, but I don't think they're consequential. Your editor. Yeah. So first, thank you for this uh, talk in the paper. It's really interesting, and it's nice to see the links and leverages really being sort of dug into what those concepts mean and how we use those. So I want to follow up on, on a statement or a, a comment that you made sort of as a throwaway in your talk that I think was really interesting was this idea of whether the U.S. linkages were to Bakiyev specifically or, or to the country sort of more broadly. And I think that would be... You know, a really fascinating dynamics or dimension of this table that you have up here, right? Mm-hmm. Linkages in different sectors between different countries, and then there's also this element of to whom, right? Is yeah, it yeah, to yeah. civil society right. or yep, is it yep. to leaders? So I wonder if you could mm-hmm. speak to that, and maybe that's explaining some of this variation as well. Is it a shift in who those linkages are being made towards? Security aside, one of the most important sources of assistance coming from the United States to Kyrgyzstan has obviously been to to civil society, so uh, democracy, assistance, and the, and the rest. Fine, but between 2008 and 10, um, Kyrgyz civil society got increasingly frustrated with the fact that uh, high-level officials meeting with Bakiyevs and others would refuse to meet with them. Uh, remember Uzbekistan between 2003 and five. Um, and that was, in a way, a source of disappointment. So, in a way, yeah, financial flows continued to, to arrive. But then they became a, a, sense, a kind of a liability uh, because, well, obviously, there were political problems between the, the government and the opposition. And in a way, a price was paid. Uh, that is, the opposition got marginalized and well, to the detriment of the image of the United States in the, re, in the country but to the benefit of um, Bakiev's willingness to give in to a number of, of requests. 
price was paid. Well, clearly things turned out differently because, but basically, yeah, Washington made a choice, backfired. Um, it was a tremendous boom for people that were known to be pro-Western in their political orientation. You know, to buy about, for example. Happen what happens in many other countries. So um, nobody would meet with them. The Kremlin would. Uh, and then, well, many of them came to power and ensured that Kyrgyzstan would turn away from its sort of multivectorial foreign policy and would just pick one course. Uh, and so it did. So I think that Kyrgyzstan, for the last, well, since Atambayev came to power, so even before he became president. Been a pretty consistent country for a country that is not known for consistency. Um, I think that, and even for a country whose politicians are not known for consistency, he's always been a, a, an individual that has never hidden his political preferences. And once in power, he's done what he said he would before. He cannot be faulted for incoherence. Uh, whether it's wise or not not for me to, to say but he's done what he said he would and sort of short sighted uh, or sort of choices more focused on, on the short term basically trumped longer term planning but then again that happens all the time too I have another question um we're having Luke and Wei here in about three weeks, and uh, the Lincoln linkage leverage idea is a useful one, especially if you're doing cross-national comparisons of different countries, not even all in the post-Soviet region. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to make assessments about Kyrgyzstan, about which external actors are going to have how much influence in a place yeah. like Kyrgyzstan, uh-huh. do you really need all that stuff, all these different indicators? Uh, you know, can't you just look at, well power in the local neighborhood and intentions of those of those actors and what they want to get out of Central Asia? Wouldn't that get you just as far without having to look at um, mm-hmm. you know these these hard numbers? Mm-hmm. Possibly, but one needs to map, map the, the various linkages in order to be able to draw some conclusions in terms of leverage. Um, which is why I think it's important to, to map all these things and to go into all this um, trouble, I think. Um, I don't think it's all about hard power. Um, I think that the actions, I mean, what happened in, in 2010 can only be explained as a result of uh, pretty conscious actions on the side of the Russian leadership to ensure that there would be really a capillary set of links to various parts of Kyrgyz society, links that could be activated when, when needed. If it's all about power, why bother to orchestrate a media campaign against uh, Bakiev? Corruption? Exposed on Russian media? Seriously. It's obviously a laughable uh, proposition, and yet they did, because the Russian media would be taken seriously in, uh, by, by Kyrgyz society. Um, migration is another source of, of leverage. It's be very difficult to, to think of Bishkek or Dushanbe to do anything that would leave 20-25% uh, of the country's population exposed uh, not that they're not exposed already but <laughs> pretty worse situation so I think that um, 
it's not just about uh, military ties um, that in fact were not activated that th those were left there uh, they deepened afterwards uh, Russia was, was asked to intervene refused uh, it relied on a number of other linkages to do what it did but not the, not the military one um, Ukraine might be a bit of an exception Central Asia don't have many cases of, of Russian intervention so because of um, the reluctance to use the military tool I think that it's important to consider what other tools were in Russia's hands to engineer a particular type of, of outcome um, engineer to enable and the, the point I made at the beginning still stands at the end of the day this war um, events that had primarily domestic causes um, so it didn't cause those events but I think that it enabled well let me ask you this if, uh, a slight, slight modification of the question uh, for this project that you're doing with these other people that are working on these other parts of the Soviet world yeah uh, instead of simply applying their template wholesale, mm -hmm. maybe you can adapt it to ways mm -hmm. to, that suit your needs mm -hmm. better. Choosing only those aspects, mm -hmm. military, security, economic, mm -hmm. media, that are really relevant to not only these countries, but also the particular issue areas, in this case, conflict. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe you know, as a project, you know, in terms of contribution, you could move, move a bit beyond that, right? Mm -hmm. Take what take something from Levinsky and Way, but mm -hmm. also you know say something of your own mm -hmm. that might be more revealing and more useful for this particular outcome that you're studying. Mm -hmm. And you just you said yourself that certain of these linkages, which what you will assume would be important, actually are not in these instances. Mm -hmm. So maybe really it's uh, media and social networks and migration mm -hmm. that are really the most important mm -hmm. aspects here in explaining um, intervention or lack of intervention in conflicts. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Okay. Or Influence in or Tur Turkey's role in Kyrgyzstan is mostly in the economic and educational sphere. Um, so I thought about a number of other countries ranging from Turkey to India to Korea and Japan, but well, eventually I decided to focus on those that matter more when it comes to making sense of. Um, key events in, in Kyrgyzstan. Something that um, as important and rising, uh, say, Korea's role in, in the country and in the region is, or as important as Turkey's role is trade and, and education, universities, is, I think that um, it w they were not so central to, to making sense of conflict dynamics, so I sort of decided to uh, leave them out. And there's no dimension of security? With Turkey? Um, not particularly, or at least not that I'm, not one that I'm aware of. Okay. 
but President Obama's statement, you know, his ties with Turkey, and so he made an official statement. He just literally he blamed Turkey in their conflict with Russia, and actually Turkey, in case of another revolution, is vision like he's a. It's going to be his last resort, actually. At least it's supposed to be. So, like in terms of this, do you think Turkey is still not have a player? I doubt that. I mean, everything is possible, but I'm not entirely sure that Turkey could actually become a relevant political or a key political. Player in the region, it had 25 years to establish presence, influence, ties, and failed on many accounts. We have different degrees of failures. I mean, the colossal blunders are in the case of Uzbekistan. It's not insignificant, but fine. It's it's an important commercial partner of Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. I'm not sure, especially at the time where. Turkey doesn't present itself as as a Western actor or as an actor part of NATO. The time where Turkey's ties with Russia are not good either. What Turkey can offer to Kyrgyzstan that could uh, could be of interest in in the country? Of course, you can try and do something just to upset Russia, but um, I, I, I cannot imagine why. A sane politician in Kyrgyzstan would sit down and listen to anything coming out of Ankara at the moment. It's political suicide. Turkey seems to have its hands full right now, also. Yeah, doesn't want to get involved in new foreign adventures. Well, the current leadership has been very good in making sure that they move from neighbor no problems in the neighborhood to. Problems in every single neighborhood. So well, you never know. Maybe not even entirely of, of its own making, of course. But yeah. No, but well, I mean, yes. I mean, that it's not the best. There's, there's a good degree of agency. It was dealt a very bad hand, and then it dealt badly with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Was a malicious intent? Perhaps in some of the neighborhoods there was even malicious intent. Okay. Well, I guess we're done here. Um, let's thank Mateo and the lovely weather for uh, making this happen. Thank you.